When we were in the hospital, Dieter and I, ready to uh, meet Madison for the first time, our oldest daughter, for her to be born, Dieter's mom came to the hospital and gave us a, a gift. It was a book on parenting, and I had never seen it before. It had a, I don't even remember the title, actually, to this day. I don't even know if I still have it. I don't... I remember looking at it, but we had many hours, well, since then. We had many hours that morning, though, uh, waiting, and I did uh, read much of it there. And it had a different approach to advice from parenting than I had remembered um, reading before. You know, we had done, as first-time parents, we had gone through parenting classes on, you know, how to discipline and, you know, sleep schedules and whatnot. Uh, so we felt good about that, although we had no idea what we were doing. But we felt good about it anyway. But this book came at it from a different perspective. It came at it by asking the question, what kind of child do you want to raise? What characteristics in your child do you want to see when they go to college? And go backwards and kind of reverse engineering parenting go backwards then and think strategically about what to input into your children's life to get to that result. And I mean, that makes sense. And I guess the drawback to that approach to parenting is kind of this, you know, parents are in control attitude, which of course is not true. Uh, you know, there's, there's more inputs into your child than just you and their mom, namely their own sinful heart, which has, you know, more of a vote than you and your mom. Uh, however, it was an interesting category to think through. And it began asking questions uh, in that first chapter. It asked questions like, do you want your child to be a missionary when they grow up? That was the first question. Do you want them to be a missionary when they grow up? When they leave home and they, they go to, to college and are done with college, do you want them to go overseas as a missionary and live their life like that? If so, then tell them stories about missionaries. You know, read biographies about missionaries, pray for missionaries, and kind of build your life that way. If not, then maybe less of those things. <laughs> you know, don't do those things and then be like, oh, I can't, where did this come from? Why are they going overseas? You read Hudson Taylor's biography to him four times, that's why. You know, basic questions like, how do you want them to interact with homeless people that, that are begging for money? How do you want them to respond to that? Then then model that in front of them and talk about why at a young age and so that when they're old enough and they're, they're on their own, they encounter that, they, they know intuitively how you would have them respond because it's already been covered. And it had, it had like 10 questions like that. Very basic questions. Their attitude towards church. Um, how do you want them treating church when they go? Then, then do that at a young age. Pray for your church and all that. And if church isn't a big deal, if you would rather prioritize other things uh, than church, you want your kids to have, you know, if you, and the book was trying to be neutral. Like if you're, you're afraid that church is going to be too strong in their life and you'd, you know, other things are important, then model that as you're, as you're raising them. But don't model that and then be surprised. You get the point, right? As you're reading through that, it it kind of jarred me into thinking it was a sobering reality that what you're, you're putting in, in some senses, at least what you're aiming for in getting out. And with all the caveats, of course, that, you know, <laughs> kids aren't food. You know, the ingredients in is not going to determine what comes out. We understand that. <laughs> we understand that. Nevertheless, it's a captivating thought just to make yourself ask the questions, what am I aiming for. Because if I'm not aiming for something, I'm not going to hit it, certainly. I'm not going to hit it. And that's exceptionally difficult even, I think, in particularly in our culture. You know, if you're, in a, if you're coming from a Christian family or you're in a Christian family, you've got the benefit going on of a little bit of your culture around you uh, is maintaining that, is expecting uh, those kind of things. Where raising your, your children in the faith, in a sense, is is easy in that regard. Like you have church. There is a youth group for your kids to go to. There's a bookstore for you to buy things for your kids to read. You know, if anything in our Christian culture today, there's too many options for the Christian family. You know, do you do youth group and Awana and uh, children's choir? And, you know, the, there's 17 different things you can choose from. You can't choose all of them. And we understand that. Um, but if you're outside of the church, it becomes a more complicated scenario. And you'll see what I mean when I say outside the church as we 
get into Daniel's life. I want you to understand that same sense the Christian culture makes it, in a sense, easier to raise your, your kids in the faith. Understand a little bit of the change that's happened in our own American culture. And I'm, of course, you know me, I'm uh, reluctant to identify, you know, the United States as a, as a Christian culture in a lot of different ways. I think that that label, the idea that, you know, this is the worst it's ever been is overplayed. Um, you know, the worst it's ever been is now because of, you know, same-sex marriage or whatever. You know, slavery was, you know, totally fine with same-sex marriage. That's too far. You know, so I, I'm, I'm hesitant to describe it like that. At the same time, understand that there are some basic pillars in our society that have eroded and that have washed away, which makes it more difficult to embrace a Christian ethic. Our culture now prizes pluralism. When you read books from the 1800s and you read about pluralism in the 1800s, it was not coming across as all truths are equal. It was not coming across as there's you know, many different ways to God or different religions are the, are the same. Pluralism in the 1800s was basically a teaching of tolerance recognizing that you live in a pluralistic society and that there are people that reject Christ and so you tolerate them. Categorically different than pluralism in our day and age. In our day and age, pluralism is that all roads are equal. You know, what's right for you is right for you. What's right for the other person is right for the other person. doesn't mean one is right, one is wrong. That's just different, categorically different than how pluralism was viewed in the 1800s. When you think of the importance of salvation, from God, this idea that there is judgment for sin and that God will, will mete it out that was baked into our, our culture to the point where that was the big obstacle atheists had. In the 1800s, the atheists, that was their big dilemma. How do you get around this idea? If you're going to reject God, the main thing the atheists realize is that you're rejecting judgment. You're rejecting law and you're rejecting judgment and you're starting at this place where obviously there is categorical evil in the world, but you're unable to explain why it's there or what to do with it. That was the big obstacle to atheism in the 1800s. You fast forward you know, a century and a half, and today that obstacle has become the selling point of atheism. That obstacle, what used to be, oh, the problem with atheism is how do you explain moral absolutes? Now, hey, the problem with religion is moral absolutes. There's freedom in atheism. The basic ethical pillars of a society that people are made in the, the image of God and that they have uh, value, worth, dignity, and, and honor in that sense because of their, their image bearers, despite how that's been abused and, and rejected. When you look at the abuses and rejections of that in our culture's history, they stand out precisely because they're not congruent. They're not in keeping with the profession. Whereas today, the rejection of people being made in the image of God and the value, worth, and inherent dignity of, of human life, it's not that it's incongruent with Christianity, it's that it is congruent with the culture. That's the difference. Toleration and pluralism steals the spotlight, where, whereas the Trinitarian theology that shaped so much of the worldview 100 years ago is ostracized, and eventually it becomes foreign. Speaking in Trinitarian kind of language, it just sounds strange to the ear now. now. This is very much the situation that Daniel finds himself in. Daniel is the perfect book for this, for this time. And this is why. The point of the book of Daniel, from start to finish, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12, is to teach people how to stand with confidence in a foreign culture. And of course it carries over uh, to our culture now, not that you're all missionaries in a foreign land, but it carries over into our culture now in that so much biblical language and, and Trinitarian terminology is foreign to our culture. Our culture very much worships other gods. Not that we live in a Buddhist culture, but we live in a materialistic culture, an individual, individualistic culture. The end goal in our culture is individualism. Basic moral principles that are from the Bible aren't tolerated in our culture. And if they are tolerated, they're seen as legal rules rather than a God that's behind them. Whereas the goal in our culture becomes satisfaction of the individual, hedonism, your own life, your own liberty, your own pursuit of happiness over and against the idea that God is the one who gives you those abilities. 
Daniel's written about that. Now, Daniel, of course, is split in the middle. The first half of it is historical stories, uh, things that happened to Daniel that, were, that attest to Daniel's ability to see the future. It attests to Daniel's ability as a prophet. He's going to prove himself over in just about every other chapter here. He's going to prove himself in the book of Daniel in chapters you know, 2, 4, and 6 that he has the ability to see the future. In chapter 5, he's going to prove that he has the ability to, to predict the rise and fall of kingdoms, that God is giving him that ability. So the first half of this book stands as one big point that, that Daniel knows the future because he is following the Lord. That's it. The second half of this book is the details of God's future. That, and you see the camera shifting away from the rise and fall of nations, the rise and fall of, of individual you know, political cultures with natural, uh, national borders, the kind of world that we live in now, and you see how they rise and fall, and you see how kingdoms come and kingdoms go, and empires go up and empires go down, but that's not where God's focus is on. So the book of Daniel is to teach Daniels and other people to stand in those kind of rising and falling cultures, knowing that those rising and falling cultures are not the focal point of history. The second half of the book is how the focal point of history is the Son of Man. It is the Savior who's going to come to the earth, who will die for sins, clothe his people in white, all of this is in the book of Daniel, will ascend to heaven, and then will come again to establish his kingdom, which will triumph over all other kingdoms. You wouldn't believe the second half of the book of Daniel without the first half of the book, though. That's why this book functions like this. This book is very... Uh, schizophrenic would be one phrase. I mean, the first half is just so much different than the, the second half. And it doesn't read the same, but understand how they work together. The first half is establishing the character of the person, the truth-telling of the person, the prophetic power of the person, Daniel. And the second half is showing what that's for. Now, I give you that as introduction because what I want to look at in chapter one tonight is back to that parenting book question. What kind of children do you want to raise? What do you want your kids to think and to believe about the world? when they're in college, when they're out of college. Because of this parallel, because of the, the, just the decline of Christian thought, the decline of Trinitarian theology, the tr decline of Trinitarian sociology, we live in a culture that is in many ways closer to Babylon than Israel. And we're raising people that would be more at home with the laws of Israel than the laws of Babylon. And so we're raising aliens. We're raising exiles. And that's the point of this first chapter. Let me give you an outline today. Let me give you a title slide first. Be impressed with the title slide, Stephen Procopio. What to teach young people so they can stand firm in Babylon. That's what I want our outline to be tonight. And if you're past the, the young person raising stage, just file this away for you what you need to know so that you can stand from in Babylon. But I'm putting this specifically in the context of young people because Daniel is an unusual story and that it focuses on his youth. It begins with his youth. It'll grow with him throughout the book, but this chapter stands out because of the youth element. Now, the background of Daniel 1 here, Israel was diminutive at this point in history. Israel was small. Israel was, was in Israel had been exiled. Judah was small. Daniel was raised in Judah. He's, it's small. Judah was one, at one point an empire. Hundreds of years ago, Judah was somebody. But they're not anybody anymore. In Daniel's lifetime, Egypt was the big nation. The Medes were impressive. They weren't slouches. The Assyrians, I mean, they were, they were what was up. The, everybody feared the Assyrians. They had Nineveh, the, this feared city of Nineveh. But then the Assyrians fell. The Assyrians conquered the Israelites and, and yanked the Israelites out of Israel. So they're gone, leaving just Judah and Benjamin. But then the Assyrians fell. And you didn't really see that coming. As you were going through 2 Kings, you didn't expect to see the Assyrians fell, fall because they're the ones that exiled Israel. It's kind of disdaining to Israel too. You know, the nation that captured you, they also fell. So how strong can Israel be? Leaving Judah with the line of David in it. But they did not fall to the Assyrians. They didn't fall to the Egyptians. They didn't fall to the Medes. They fell to the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And just for reference, Babylon is the geographic title and the Chaldean is the ethnic title. So the, the Babylonians, the, the Babylon is the nation. The people who live there are Babylonians. 
but the Chaldeans is the ethnicity of the, the major group in, in Babylon. And you need to know that because Babylon, what they would do, the way they rolled is they would conquer a nation, exile the people in that nation. They did not do what the Romans did. The Romans would conquer people and let them stay there. The Babylonians would conquer people and remove them from the land, move them around their empire, put them somewhere else. And so not all Babylonians were Chaldeans. There are many Babylonians were, were exiles, were refugees in that sense. But the Chaldeans, they were the ones who were Babylonians. Our story starts in 605 BC, 605 years before Jesus' birth, when Judah was first conquered. This is described in, in 2 Kings when... Uh, 2 Kings 25, in fact, I'll flip over and just read you a little bit of this. You can read along with me or you can uh, just listen. But 2 Kings 25 describes just the, the incredible way this, this exile happens. It rocked their, their world in verse 7. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah, that was the king, before his own eyes. They tore out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in chains, and took him off to Babylon. So this is the attack in 605. The first time the Babylonians conquered uh, the tribe of Judah, they took the king and ripped out his eyes, put him in chains, and bound him, likely with a hook through his nose, is how they usually did this, and paraded to this blind king now through his city and off into Babylon. In the fifth month of the seventh day of the month, this was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the, king of the, uh, the captain of the bodyguard, the servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of Yahweh in the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. All the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. The rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. This is Daniel's exile. Notice that this was not a peaceful event. The king is, you know, 19 years earlier had his eyes ripped out. Now the army has returned. And they've returned. And now they've just looted everything and burned the temple to the ground. And so that violence is in the background here of Daniel chapter 1. Side note, it's likely that Daniel was related to Hezekiah. This is from the prophecy in Isaiah 39 verse 7 where Isaiah says some of your own sons. Isaiah is prophesying to Hezekiah. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you father will be taken away and they'll become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So it's likely that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were related in some sense to Hezekiah, maybe not necessarily children or grandchildren, but somewhere in his extended family. That seems to be fitting with Isaiah 39. Look back at Daniel chapter one. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, and we skipped that part that was coming on later in 2 Kings, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them into the land of the house of God. He brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. You've got to get your mind around a little bit what this was like. You, first of all, you see the violence in Second Kings of how they got exiled, but you really have to picture Babylon. Let me read you from an uh, archaeological journey, uh, journal, a description of Babylon. I'm just going to read you. I know it's boring to hear a paragraph read out loud from a journal, but this is worth it. The city was rectangular. It straddled the Euphrates, which ran through it from north to south. Coming from the north, you would enter the city through a spectacularly beautiful gate named after a Babylonian god, Ishtar. And this is called the Ishtar Gate. So the city of Babylon had four different gates. This is the biggest one. She was the goddess of fertility, love, and war, which for the Babylonians was redundant. <laughs> she was the high mother goddess of Babylon. The largest building in Babylon was a temple for her. The gate, the Ishtar gate, uh, was one of eight. The city walls were 80 feet thick. People lived in parts of them. 320 feet tall on the north side. That's 100 yards. It's, it's just insane. The city was surrounded by this wall. The gates had towers on the side that were covered in ceramic tiles of deep blue with white and yellow dragons, lions, and bulls on them. So you're coming into the city and the first thing you would see, not Zedekiah because he lost his eyes, but the first thing Daniel and the others would see is this massive wall. 
as the river runs through the city, this massive wall you come in, the gate swings open with this, these bright blue ceramic tiles with lions and dragons breathing down on you. And you see down the middle of the street and there's this huge temple for that goddess at the end of the street. The street is, a, I won't read you the rest of the journal, but it goes on to say the street was designed to disorient visitors. You walked in and you lose sight. It was so big. I mean, the wall was so big, you couldn't see through much of it. The only thing you could see above the wall was the top of the temple. Then you would walk through the gates and you would be lost. There's a whole city there that you couldn't see before. And the whole road is funneling you, this wide road towards that temple, which towered over everything. It was supposed to disorient you and funnel everything towards the temple of this goddess. That's what Daniel walked into. And notice the little thing. The very first thing Daniel tells you in Daniel 1, which means it's important to him, we usually skip over. You forget it. You probably forgot it's there already. The first thing Daniel tells you is that they took the vessels from the temple that we just saw them burn back in 2 Kings and put them in that, that palace for the, for the goddess. They put, so they moved Yahweh's vessels from Judah with the captives, with the exiles, and put them in this, this palace for the goddess of fertility and war. So it's, it's not subtle what they're doing. They want these new captives. They want these new exiles from the tribe of Judah. They want them to worship their new God. That's what Daniel walks into. Let me keep reading for you, verse 3. Then the king commissioned Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So this chief eunuch is seeing all of the exiles come and he's choosing some that are related to the king of Judah. Again, likely Daniel is from Hezekiah, which would be the line of David's family. So he's looking at them and he chooses a few of these kids. They're supposed to be the best looking when you know how long Daniel lived and the, when the fall of Persia happens, it's likely Daniel was 14, not older than 15 at this point. As he's brought in exile, just seeing his house burned, his family killed, if not exiled, yanked through that gate, past the dragons in front of this massive temple as he's paraded now in front of the chief eunuch who is pulling out the most handsome and educated people from the lot. If his family did survive the sacking of Jerusalem, he's not going to see them again. He's now separated from them, giving them quizzes, apparently, to see their wisdom. I mean, I don't know how you tell that from the outside, so it's likely there were some kind of conversations here, endowed with understanding, learning, probably proficient in their language already. The, the language is incredibly hard to learn. It had different characters than, than Hebrew, and it was not a phonetic language. They used symbols in it. It was a kind of cuneiform language, and so it's just incredibly hard to learn. And so they're choosing the most intelligent of these teenagers, and they have the ones with good appearance. There's a quote from a different journal describing what the Babylonians meant by good appearance. Let me read you this. For the Babylonians... A strong appearance, what was attractive, is, quote, well-muscled, fully bearded, luxuriantly curled hair. <laughs> so I don't know if there's a swimsuit competition with this or, or what, but well-muscled with a big beard and lots of curly hair. And extremely well-educated. That's Daniel as a teenager. Pulled out of line, given a new life, a new identity, Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food. The king ate the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Mishiach, and Azariah he called Abednego. And we'll talk more about those names later. This is Daniel's new life. What is Daniel going to demonstrate in this? What do you need to teach your children so they can stand like Daniel does in this land? First, character. I'm going to give you three C's, by the way. First, character. Character. Look at how Daniel responds. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. 
So this is our first part of the narrative here. Daniel's been yanked out of line, and the king himself said, you will eat this food and you will drink this wine. So eunuch, find me the most attractive and most intelligent people that are related to the king of Judah. Get them and make them, and this is what the Babylonians did, because they didn't rule with force over these other people. Their idea was to incorporate them, move them around, and assimilate them into Babylonian culture. Very different than the Persians will do in the second half of the book of Daniel. Their approach was to you know, give you your own language and let you stay where you wanted to, just pay taxes to them. But the Babylonians, no, they were going to teach you to be Babylonian. They were, they were not a tolerant people. The Babylonians did not have in their mind, just let, live and let live. Pay your taxes and do your own thing, like the Romans would do and the, the Persians would do. They had a different approach. They, they were going to make you Babylonian. You were going to worship their God, and you were going to take on the Chaldean ethnic you were going to be assimilated and that's why they moved you that was their whole agenda here and so now as part of that they would get their leaders up in the king's household and so you would see if you were from the tribe of Judah in exile you'd look in the the temple and you would see your own leaders there imagine how persuasive it would be if you saw people related to your former king in the king's court you would think this is who we are now there's no sense in fighting I mean this is this is our new life Daniel is going to be groomed for that. He's going to have to learn their language, to speak like them, to worship like them. Everything is going to be taught to him. And step one is eat this food. And don't picture this as like a college buffet kind of thing, like a college dorm. You know, every college student goes away to college and comes back complaining about their food. (laughs) Don't picture it like this. Picture instead in the temple picture and when it's eating the food and drinking the wine i mean this is a celebration and these people are at the top of the political class the top of society there it's going to be revelry it's going to be in the temple of course that's where this kind of thing happened the whole idea was the whole culture that's around this but daniel and his friends were men of character and here's how you see the character daniel said no thank you to the food. He asked the chief of the eunuchs not to allow him or to allow him to not defile himself. Now I want you to notice the lines that Daniel had no problem crossing and the line that he wouldn't cross. Daniel had no problem being put in this school. He had no problem being put in the, the public school of the day. You could say it that way. Daniel had no problem going to their school. He had no problem learning their language, reading their books, learning to read and write like a Chaldean. That was not what he objected to. He didn't say, I can't learn those things. Off limits for me. I'm a follower of Yahweh, the true God, so I cannot learn those things. No way. He let himself go to the school. He let himself be taught by these pagans. He also let his name be changed. There's no record in here that he objected to his name change. It seems like he went along with it. His friends will be known by their new names. So Daniel, Daniel rolled with the name change. And we'll talk more about the name change later. But he, he accepted that. But the food, that's a bridge too far. He will not do the food. Now, some people think it's because the food violated Levitical law, that there was kosher and unkosher food, and Daniel didn't want to eat unkosher food. I don't think that's it. Because, I mean, if, you're, if, if you've been to Israel, you get the kosher, unkosher society. You have to wash your hands here and not there, and food prepared here and not there. I mean, it defines their whole life. There's no way to be kosher in Babylon. Like, that's not going to happen. Even if you eat vegetables, you're not going to be able to keep the Levitical ceremonial law. I mean, there's just, there's no way that's going to play out. It's just impossible. The temple is gone. You need, the, the temple's a big part of that. You don't have that anymore. So I'm sorry, your Levitical purity is over with. I don't think that's what's driving Daniel here. I think it's the whole world culture that's around that. I mean, the food implies the revelry. The food implies the, the worship. There, wine is not against Levitical law, even for 14-year-olds. <laughs> so that's not it. The reason he objects is the world view that is just embraced around that table. And he won't sit there. Now why would Daniel stand up? Imagine the courage it would take to stand up in this environment. This is why I call it character. Character does not change with changing circumstances because character defines who you are. Your convictions bring forth your character. Your convictions drive your character because your convictions drive your actions. When your convictions drive your actions and you do the actions over time, that defines your character. That's what character is. 
character is how you act when you're under pressure, how you act when nobody is watching, how you act when you have a moral decision to make. That's your character. And what drives those decisions, what drives those habits, what drives who you are is your convictions that are behind them. You could picture some people objecting to the name change and think, what kind of conviction is behind that objection? That my name defines who I am. It's a kind of a shallow conviction. Almost ritualistic. Sentimentalism. And that's why Daniel's fine with the name. Or the education. That's almost, that would have more in common with almost kind of fundamentalism. Like I can't learn in that school because what I learn might corrupt me. Daniel's not, that's not Daniel's conviction either. That's not his character. But what is his character is that the revelry of this God worship, the, the, the feasting of this environment, that I can't participate in. That is against my character. And his parents are not watching him. He's only there with his friends. Now, why? Why does Daniel care about this? You need kind of a big picture here. If, you know, I don't want to summarize the whole Bible for you, but let me at least summarize Israel, the, 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 the promise that there will be a savior will be that the savior will come through Israel, specifically for the tribe of Judah, through the line of Judah. Daniel's familiar with these promises. But now Judah is no more. I mean, do you understand that? The promise was that the savior would be a king from the line of David. There is no more line of David. There is no more king on the throne in Jerusalem. As far as Daniel, Daniel doesn't know the end of the book. He doesn't know the prophecies coming up that the son of man will come still. He doesn't know the prophecy about Israel being broken off in the 69th week. He hasn't written that yet. When he's experiencing this, for all intents and purposes, Jerusalem is gone. He saw it burn down. So what's his character about? Is, is he hoping that, you know, if Israel comes back to the land, he'll be part of it? I mean, maybe. He would have had some of Jeremiah's prophecies where Jeremiah plants the, the title deed in the ground and says, I'll be back to claim that later. So maybe he has that going on in his mind. And then Jeremiah hadn't been written yet, but that, that event had taken place. So he probably heard about that. Maybe he has convictions about Israel returning, Jehoiakim taking his signet ring off and throwing it back to Israel. Maybe he has some kind of conviction. That seems to be a stretch for me. I think it's more likely, it's just simpler to say that his convictions were not based on geography, they were based on deity. His convictions, his character were not formed in where Israel was or where God's promise with the Savior was. His convictions were formed with who God is. His morality was not connected to his ethnic identity. His morality was connected to his view of God. And that is the most critical thing on this list to teach young people. That your convictions have to be based on your understanding of God. Your convictions cannot be based on what your family does. Those are like training wheels. Those answers are like training wheels. You know, our kids ask, why can't we watch this movie or why can't we do this or that? And it's the simplest answer, which I have used many times, is because that's not what we do as a family. Our family doesn't do those things, okay? That's just there. You're Johnson, you're not those other families, you, so don't tell me what your friends do because our family, we do, we do this and we don't do that. Simple answer. But that answer is not going to produce long-term character because when your family is gone, character is what remains. For character to be there, that conviction has to be connected to who God is. And that requires more work to teach your kids to connect the dots from who you are and what your family does and doesn't do through that back to who God is. So that when your family is gone, the conviction is there. This is, I think, what's behind a lot of times when kids go away to college and they wander away from the faith because the family's no longer there. What was tethering that conviction? The accountability of family and church, and that accountability is good. The accountability of church and family is good, but it is not sufficient to build a life of character. Daniel had no grounds, no grounds for believing that character would help or these Levitical laws would help Israel get its land back. I mean, I was going to read this to you, but for the sake of time, you can just jot this down. It's Jeremiah 22, 7 through 9. Jeremiah 22, 7 through 9. And that's where Yahweh basically gives Israel away and says, go away. <laughs> go away. You're going to be burned. You're going to be destroyed because you've forsaken the covenant of God, it's all over. You worship other gods. Daniel, again, 
I think, would be aware of that prophecy. There's no reason for him to hold fast. If he's hoping that the land of Israel, that if he keeps the law, he'll get the land back, that's not going to happen. So instead, you have to deduce that he understood character was connected to who God is. That's goal number one in parenting. Convince your kids, convince your young people that their character is connected to who God is and that never changes. Second, competency. Not just character, but competency. Competence matters for Christians because the Christian life is a life of action. The Christian life is meant to be lived in public. Look at how Daniel responds. God gave, verse 9, Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? Remember why he, Daniel was chosen? Because he was muscular, he was ripped, and he had a nice beard, maybe, as a 14-year-old. I don't know how you can tell, but at the very least, he was ripped, and he had luxuriously curly hair. If you're chosen, and this, this guy, this eunuch, not ripped, <laughs> this eunuch, <laughs> and your life depends, for the eunuch, your life depends upon you choosing these guys and cultivating them and growing them into these strong, muscular, brilliantly intelligent men, and you've got the cream of the crop, your first, second, third, and fourth round draft pick come up to you and say, we're not going to eat your food. That is a huge problem. It's not like, oh, the, the paleo diet it might not give you the right nutrients. This is not their objection. The eunuch's objection is if your muscles drop, I can be killed. That's where this objection is coming from. He phrases it delicately. What if the king sees that you're in worse condition than the other you see your age? Not just that you're not the best looking, but you're actually worse than the people I didn't choose. <laughs> You'd endanger my head with the king, he says in verse 10. So Daniel said to the steward, whom of the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat at the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So they listened to him in this matter and tested him for 10 days. Notice the, the amazing trust these guys have with Daniel. They didn't just say no. They actually told him why. I mean, this is an educated group of people here. You know, you think of a prison guard scenario. That's not what this is. It's not no and the prison guard says Yes. <laughs> They're having an actual conversation and the, and the chief eunuch and the, the steward over them is saying, this is the problem, man. Well, at the ten, end of 10 days, verse 15, it was seen they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. And I think that is actually better rendered muscles because of the context here than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So they, they won the contest. <laughs> they ate the right food and they... They, they ate food that didn't compromise them and you know, they got up early and worked out. I don't know. <laughs> but at the end of the 10 days, they were actually stronger. Which I think, I don't think there's magic in the food here. I think it's, the point is that God was working with them. But the point you're going to see in verse 17 is that they were also doing work. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That's one of the things they were learning is how to discern visions, by the way. And when you're there in class, they're not just learning about the Babylonian gods. One of the main components of their education was how to discern dreams and visions. That's going to be important for chapter two. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among them, all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They had excelled in their knowledge. They had learned the language, the incredibly difficult language to learn. They had learned all the content of the books, how to discern dreams, which of course is rubbish, but they had to learn it for the test. You know, you tell kids that are going to school and having to take, you know, philosophy or whatever, how am I supposed to learn this kind of stuff for biology? Am I supposed to learn the theory of evolution? Yeah, learn it, own it, own it in and out, get a hundred on your exam and then just know that it's, it's rubbish, but still nail it for the test. <laughs> It's okay, you can learn lies if it helps you pass the test. That's part of education in our world. <laughs> and Daniel is the example of this. Yeah, he'll go to school and he'll learn how to discern dreams according to the, you know, the chief counselors of the day. But come on. But Daniel excelled. And the king, 
And you, by the way, you can tell that Daniel learned all this and it, does, it doesn't actually work even though he knew it because that's coming in chapter two, right? What he learned in school does not help him interpret these dreams. <laughs> but notice that it wasn't just his character that helps him stand out. It was his confidence. He was taught not just to be a godly man, but he was taught to do good work. I'm telling you, confidence matters for Christians because the Christian life is a life of action. The level of confidence with which we perform the good works we have been called to do validates the gospel testimony in the eyes of the world. Deidre and I have a friend who lives in Albania. He told me, I can't, I can't hire Christians to do things at my house or at their, their language school. I can't, I can't hire Christians to work in our property. I can't because they do such a bad job. And 1 Corinthians 6 means I can't sue them to get my money back. <laughs> I'm stuck hiring Muslims because at least they work hard. And what a sad testimony. How much better would the testimony be that the Christians are the ones that do their work well? This is what Paul means, 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Aspire to live quietly, mind your own business, and work with your hands. You know, you, do you know when you tell somebody, mind your own business, you're quoting the Bible? Mind your own business, but work hard with your hands so that you can live, notice Paul's connection, properly before outsiders. Why do you need to work hard with your hands? Why do you need to keep your head down, work hard? So the outsiders look at you and go, whoa, that guy works hard. And they can ask you, and you work hard. You do a good job. Tell me why. Boom. The Christian life is not meant to be lived behind closed doors, but is meant to be on public display, but it's not meant to be obnoxious. The Christians are meant to be the hard workers. They are meant to do their jobs better than anybody else. Why? Why? I mean, what makes, is, is a Christian choose a barber? What makes a Christian barber better than a non-Christian barber? Does, you know, does the Holy Spirit guide the scissors? No. It's that he knows he's cutting hair not for the benefit of this person as the, as the end. He's cutting hair because he's working for the Lord. That's true with every single profession. This is why you shouldn't work in an inherently sinful profession because that logic breaks down. You know, don't be a thief to the glory of God. <laughs> In fact, Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let them labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anybody who's in need. I mean, fundamentalism comes in, I mean that word negatively in this context, comes in when you're known more about what you're against than what you're for. That's the danger. Notice how Daniel has navigated that well. He will not allow himself to be known as the guy who won't eat the king's food. Um, That is a bad testimony. Oh, that person over there, they're the person that doesn't watch this and doesn't do that and doesn't say these words and doesn't do those things. They don't go here and they don't go there. That's, I mean... I'm glad you're guarding your life and your reputation, but that cannot be your reputation. Your reputation has to go beyond that to this is the person that does these things. Not this is the person that won't watch those movies, but this is the person that is always generous with his time. Not this is the person who doesn't say those words, but this is the person who's always speaking uplifting things. Do you see the difference? Daniel saw the difference and appreciate that. This would be a shorter chapter if it ended with, I'm not eating that rubbish. Chapter two. But no, he's not eating that rubbish and he is exceptionally good at his job. That's the point. Joshua and Brett Harris, or Brett and Alex, I think two of the Harris brothers, there's three of them, two of them. The youngest two have that book called Do Hard Things. And the best part of that book, I think, is this little reminder that we live in a culture with young people that has low expectations. How low expectations? You have a good kid if your kid stays out of trouble. Is it possible to have a lower expectation than that? I mean, seriously. Is anything lower than they don't do anything? Noteworthy. Nothing's lower. And yet that has been elevated to a virtue. It becomes a virtue. And that's sad. Daniel did not hit the lowest common denominator. It wasn't just that he wouldn't do bad things. It was that he excelled at what he did. You can't prove a negative. Right? You can't prove a negative. If your definition of character is staying out of trouble, then listen, you never have character. 
because you cannot establish it. Because the next moment it can be gone. You have to have good deeds behind your character to establish your character. It's got to be more than stays out of trouble. Otherwise, the math is never done. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, picture Daniel, whether you eat the veggies or you eat the meat, whether you eat the wine or drink the wine or drink the water, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. First thing you want to teach your young people, the importance of character. Second, the importance of competency, doing everything for the glory of God. Thirdly, the importance of companions. Or you could say it this way, I have in my notes collaboration, but companions works as well. Collaboration or companions. You're not meant to do this alone. You're not meant to, you have to teach Christian young people that they cannot exist as an island. They cannot be the only godly person in their school that they know. That can't happen because that will be a short story. And so it is with Daniel. He wasn't out there as on his own. The king spoke with them, verse 19, and none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, plural, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom. Remember, what they're learning is, is dream discernment here. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel was not by himself. You have to teach your children the importance of character, the importance of competency, and the importance of collaboration or, or companions, having godly companions. Bad company corrupts good morals. Good company strengthens. You drive that into your children. Do you want friends that are convincing you to sin or friends that are convincing you to do something righteous? Do you want friends when you're in high school that are saying, should we do this or should we not do that? Or let's go get in this trouble over here. Let's try this over here. Do you think your parents will let you do that? Or do you want friends when you're in high school that are saying, can we go serve in this way? Can we serve the Lord in this way? Can we pray for this thing? Those friends don't go on trees. They have to be developed through common character and through striving for competency. That develops those companions. That develops that collaboration. Let me talk a bit about their name changes. Daniel, I'm sure many of you know this, but Daniel means God is my judge. That's what his name means. His parents named him God is my judge. Hananiah is the other side of the coin here. Hananiah's name means God shows grace. You got law and gospel there in these two guys. Mishael means who is like God. Who's like God? And Azariah means God helps. What you see in their names is the four spiritual laws. Do you get that? Your sin separates you from God and God is the judge. And he will judge you. Yet, God shows grace. God shows grace. That's Hananiah. God shows grace. He will descend to you and show you grace and forgive you of your sins. Mishael who else can do that? Who else is like God that can bridge the gap between your sin and God's righteousness? Okay, that's not good enough because you need help. That's Azariah. God helps. Now, I don't know this. This might be apocryphal. But if the four of them worked on this routine, I bet I know why the Babylonians made them change their names. <laughs> Here's Daniel. Hey, did I tell you this means God is a judge and he will judge you, my friends. Oh no, but meet my friend Hananiah. God will show you grace, but only through the true God. That's what Mishael has to say. No one else is like him. Nazariah comes along, but God will help you put your faith in him. Notice there are new names. Daniel is renamed to Belshazzar, which means Bel, their God, protects life. Hananiah, renamed to Shadrach, which means at the command of Aku, the moon god. So now you do what the moon god says. Azariah renamed Abednego. That means a servant of Nebu. And that's the same word, by the way, it becomes Nebuchadnezzar's name. And Mishael is renamed Mishak, who is like Aku, who's like the moon god. Notice that it's mocking his previous name. Who's like Yahweh? Yeah, right. Who's like the moon god, my friend? Tell me about that. And yet they took that. They were in it together. Those four guys took that. They took that humiliation. They took that ridicule. They took that overt attempt to assimilate them into the pagan culture. They took it. They rolled with that. 
but leading on each other, they had enough character to embrace that and still work hard and still excel without compromising their integrity. How would they know where to take stands? Well, they knew the word of God, of course. They examined their motives. They listened to their conscience. They sought counsel, and they strove to be bold. We'll look at that outline later on. When you have character, confidence, and collaboration, you have the means by which you can stand strong. Lacking those means, the salt loses its taste. The light is put under a basket. Salt is good for nothing except to be trampled upon. If you have a young person that doesn't have character, that doesn't have competency, that doesn't have companions, then they don't have salt. And Jesus says, if you're the salt of the earth, you have to persevere. You have to change the culture around you. You have to change the world around you. Otherwise, you lose your taste and you're good for nothing except being trampled underfoot. So to go back to the question at the beginning of the day, what kind of children do you want to raise? I submit to you that these three words from the book of Daniel, should be driving you. You should be thinking, how do I teach my kids the importance of character? Tying it to God and God's identity. How do I teach my kids the importance of competency? Doing things well as under the Lord. And how do I teach them the importance of companions? Surrounding themselves with others who love the Lord and push you forward, not pull you back. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that for grace, knowing that we fail in all these things, that our character is often compromised, our work is not often as good as it should be, and sometimes don't choose the right friends. We know the point of the book of Daniel is not be like Daniel. The point of the study is to, to come to you, to be like you, and we know that you will help us to do that through your son, Jesus Christ. That's what Daniel's pointing to. The son of man will come clothed in white, the ancient of days. He will open up the book. He will raise the dead, and he will give life to those whose names are found in the book of life. We're thankful for that promise. But in the meantime, we know this is also an ethical story. It's teaching us how we ought to live. So I pray for grace and wisdom, especially for the parents, that they would know how to train their children, that you would give them the grace to instill in their children the importance of character. We know this world often assails character, things that the Bible calls virtuous or Negatives in our culture, narrow-mindedness, exclusivity, snobbish, self-righteous, judgmental, those are all the phrases that get lobbed our way. Lord, I pray that we would have the grace to receive those accusations, receive those phrases. As Daniel had his name changed, let us not be insulted by, by labels that get pinned to us. Help us live instead based on the character that is tied to your identity. We want to be like you. We want to be pleasing to you in how we live. Give us the grace to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.